So about a week ago, I had to go to the DMV. I think God is everywhere, but he's not at the DMV. He's like, I am long-suffering and patience, but oh, I can't do it, right? So uh, for like two years, I put off going there because of COVID, right? It was like shut down, and then you had to make appointments that you could never make. So it was like the silver lining in the pandemic, like, yes. Sorry, policeman, I couldn't renew my registration because it's closed, right? So finally, I had to do it. So went down there, I was working here, so I ran down really quick, and I pushed a number, and it was number 93, and I looked up, and it was on number 61. I just did the calculation. I said, I bet it's about two minutes at least per person. So if I left and came back in an hour, I'll probably hit it right. So I came back here, kept working. 55 minutes later or so, I headed back down there. I get there, and there's like one or two numbers left. I sit down, and someone there knows me. They're like, hey, Pastor Matt. I'm like, hey, how are you doing? And then my number gets called, and I just stand up and start walking over. He's like, hey, what's up? I just looked at him. God's favor. <laughs> okay. So now to Jesus. I know it's a hard term from the DMV to Jesus, but I can do it. So here's where we're at. Jesus has come in, proclaimed himself to be king, coronated. And then he's confirmed through questions. They question after question after question. Theological questions, political questions, tax questions. What's the greatest commandment? Is there a resurrection? Right? Questions have stopped. Now Jesus says, now it's my turn. 91, number 91 is up. Now it's my turn. And what he's going to do is real simple. He's going to say, I'm God, so don't be like that and do be like this. It's brilliant. Let's go. Mark chapter 12. Picking it up, verse 35. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, Jesus authenticating the inspiration by God's Spirit of the Bible. David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Here's our theology lesson. Jesus, my turn, he quotes Psalm 110 a psalm written by David. In the psalm, David, whose son will become Messiah, promise of 2 Samuel chapter 7, says, hey, my Lord said to the Lord. So he essentially calls his coming future descendant, great, 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 great grandson, he calls him Lord. Anyone here, ever call one of their kids Lord? No, right? It goes the other direction. So when my, yeah, someone said, yeah, my kids call me Lord. 
Yeah. Kind of like that, because when my older daughters were very young, maybe four or five-ish, right in that area, they came to me and they said, Dad, you have all these nicknames for us. Bella and Bells and Jaden and Jaders. We want a nickname for you. I said, I just like Dad. Just call me Dad. And they kept pestering me, pestering me, pestering me. So finally I said, okay, fine. You can either call me Dad or you can call me Boss Man. That's it. I don't know why I said that, but I did. So guess what they started calling me? Boss Man, right? I came in Boss Man. So as fate would have it, we're in Walmart. We're shopping. I have the two girls with me. I lose Bella, who has a voice that carries. I'm looking at something when all of a sudden I hear, hey, boss man, where are you, boss man? And the people next to me are like, who in the world would be called boss man? So I just left her there at Walmart. <laughs> I'm going to raise fearless daughters. Get out of Walmart yourself, sweetie. That's the route it goes. But Jesus, and this is 2,000 years ago where the difference was much greater. The respect to parents was much greater. Jesus is like, what's up with this? David calls his son, Lord, David, the most important king in the Old Testament. David, the writer of 72 Psalms. David, one of the key guys in the Old Testament says, the coming Messiah is Lord. And then Jesus just lets it hang there. But everyone knew what he was saying. What he was saying is, Messiah is God. And Jesus is Messiah. Now, there are people that say that Jesus never claimed to be God in the Bible. Have you heard that? I just always say, what Bible are you reading? Because right here he does it theologically. In the following chapters, chapter 14, when Jesus is brought before the high priest, they question him, they question him, they question him. Finally, Jesus says this. He says in the Greek, ego ami, which literally means I am. Now, if you know your Bible, when Moses asked God his name in Exodus chapter three, verse 14, God responds in Hebrew, I am, which is Yahweh. I am the existent one. So Jesus Fast forward 2,000 years, he's being questioned by the high priest. He uses the exact same phrase, if you would, I am. And in case we miss it, the high priest tears his robe. Now, this is when you couldn't go to Walmart and get new clothes, right? This is an expensive deal. Tears his clothes and says, blasphemy, he deserves to die. Why? Because he just made himself God. Ah, Jesus claims to be God. Go to the beginning of Mark. A man brought to Jesus, crippled. They cut a hole in the roof. They lower him down. Jesus looks at this crippled man, and what does he do? He says, your sins are forgiven. And the people were like, wait a second. Only God can forgive sins. So Jesus says, all right, I'm going to prove to you who I am. Stand up and walk. I'm going to prove I have the authority to forgive his sins because I'm God. Later in that same chapter, they get mad at him about the Sabbath. Jesus says this, I am Lord, captain, owner of the Sabbath. Who created the Sabbath? God, Genesis 2, 4. What does Jesus say? It's mine. I own it. Over and over, Jesus claims to be God. 
So I ask you once again, who do you say Jesus is? Jesus can't just be a good teacher because what he taught and how people followed it out is not good. Millions of people have been persecuted. Hundreds of thousands have died because of their faith in Jesus. That's not good. It goes back to what C.S. Lewis said 70 years ago. He said, you only have three choices for Jesus. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or he's the Lord. That's your only choices. And Jesus categorically claims to be God. And if you're a believer in the Bible, then you have to believe Jesus is God come in the flesh. So Jesus, after all these questions, after his coronation, now he just says, I'm God. It's not enough for you to think I'm good or special. I'm God. And because I'm God, don't be like this. Verse 38. And in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplace and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. I'm God, so do not be like the scribes. We have 20-20 hindsight. So we realize what the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, what they're planning and what they're going to do to Jesus. They're gonna put him on a cross and kill him. And we see that in hindsight. But if you could rewind the clock to 32 AD, the scribes were the heroes of the faith. Everyone looked up to them. Everyone wanted their kids to become a scribe. It would be like me saying to you today, hey, don't be like Billy Graham. You'd be like, what? That's insanity. He's a great dude. Are you kidding? That's what Jesus is saying here. So he has to explain himself, and he gives this explanation, two things really. And I'll explain it like this. Number one, don't be like them because number one, they were the original Instagrammers. All show and no go. Pretty picture, pathetic life. And so what they did is they had this outfit, their long robe, and everyone would wear the same kind of long robe. And what it told everybody looking at them was, I'm a scribe. So I want the best seat I want the accolades. It was an outfit, really. It was a long robe, and then they would do something else. They would wear these things called a phylactery. Does everyone know what a phylactery is? Okay, here's what a phylactery is. It's a little box, and this little box, they would put into it some scripture. Because in Deuteronomy 6, the Bible says this, bind my word to your frontlet to your head and bind it on your hand probably not to be taken literally. What it meant was have God's word in your head and have God's word on your hand. Have God's word in your head so you're thinking about him and have God's word on your hand so that what you're doing is in line with God's word, right? And it would look like this guy. And normally there are little boxes because you only put three little texts in it. Exodus 13, two through 16, Deuteronomy 6, 
four through six, and then Exodus 11, 13 through 21. You don't need a big box. But guess what they started doing? Making the boxes bigger. So Charity and I went to Israel back in 2016, and we went to the Dead Sea where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. And they've been digging there. They found a phylactery, and it was the size of one of those igloo chests, right? Can you imagine having that on your head? Like that's bragging rights, right? You had a big chiropractic bill, but man, look at my phylactery. So it was like this outfit and it was demonstrating, it was all show and no go. Look how holy I am. Look at me. All show and no go. Now, why would they do that? Isn't there something in every single heart that wants people to believe they're more holy than they actually are? that their robes are longer than they are, that their phylacteries are bigger than they actually are. That's in all of us. It's in churches. Like churches always have like, here's why we're better. We're better because we don't own a building. We're better because we meet in a warehouse. We're better because we meet in a beautiful cathedral. We're better because we meet in a bar on Sunday morning and smoke cigars. We're better because we meet in a school. We're better because our communion is gluten-free and we use real wine, not styrofoam like Edgewater does. Okay, right? There's, that's in all of us, this drive to like, look at how big our robes are. Look how great we are. Personally, I carry my Bible around. It makes me better. Yeah, but do you read it? I have bumper stickers about Jesus on the back of my car. Okay. Now, I'm not against any of those things. But I will say, if you want to put a Christian bumper sticker on your car, you better drive like Jesus. It's why I don't have a bumper sticker on my car. In fact, I thought about putting a Jehovah's Witness sticker on my car. Just like, empty the place. That rude guy. <laughs> it's in all of us. It's kind of, mm, mm, mm. And here's why it matters. I have this quote by Albert Einstein and I wrote it down and I think about it quite often. He said this, he said, do not seek to be a man of success, but seek to be a man of value. See, in Instagram, you can be successful with a thousand million followers, whatever you got, 10 million followers. Big whoop. Are you a person of character and goodness and value or is it just about the likes? We gotta be very careful about this. I got the robes. I got the phylactery. Who cares? Where is your character, right? Deeper things. So reading this, it reminded me of this kid up at school. Um, um, the professor was handing it was when I was going to school up in Portland. This, this guy retold this story. It was hilarious. And the pastor, or the professor was giving back everyone's papers and he got his paper and he got a B on the paper. And so he started arguing with the professor about his B's like, Hey, this is a work. And the professor's like, no, nah, it's B work. He's like, no, look. And he started showing him stuff in there and like really pestering this professor. And like the whole class is like watching this going, Oh, what's going to happen here? Finally, the professor just gets, okay, fine. Grabs the paper back from the guy, crosses out the B, gives him an A. And then he says this, you can have an A on your paper, but you will always be a B preacher. Woo! Now, why would that professor say that? 
because the paper was evaluating him. That's all it is. Who cares about that? If your goal is to be a great preacher, your attitude should have been, hey, I want to be a great preacher. What am I doing wrong in this paper? Instead of arguing how great you are, maybe the professor would be there to help you. Because of his attitude, the professor's like, yeah, you'll never grow. If you're arguing about how great you are already, instead of having the attitude of humility, you think your robes are long enough and your box is big enough. You should be like, hey, I want to grow up. I want to be an A preacher. What do I need to do to become that way? Right? Beware of these guys. I'll show a no-go. Number two, they have long, pretentious prayers. They're faking it. They're not praying to get close to God. They're not praying to get wisdom from God. They're not praying to intercede for other people or to get help. They're making long-winded prayers as a cover to take and rob widows' bank accounts. Terrible. They're hypocrites. They preach it without practicing it, right? That's their problem. They tell you what to do, but they don't do it themselves. It'd be like going to the dentist and the dentist has really bad teeth. Would you want to listen to his advice? No, right? I, I, I cut this out a couple of years ago. It just cracked me up. Did you read this? Feeling guilty about flossing? Maybe there's no need. Turns out all that flossing may be overrated. You don't need to floss anymore. I showed this to a dentist locally. He's a good friend of mine. He goes, yeah, that won't change anything in Grant's past because nobody flosses right now anyways. <laughs> Right? It'd be like, hey, dentists and uh, bad teeth, and I'm not going to take your advice because you got bad teeth. That's that idea. These guys, they're fake. They're pretentious. It's preaching without practicing. Dentists with bad teeth. And here's what Jesus is saying about this group of people. He's saying this. These long-robed, pretentious praying, all show and no-go guys, Judgment's coming. What that causes me to do is say, Lord, I don't want judgment to come to me. I, want, I don't want to preach without practicing. I don't want to say things that I'm not doing. Make sure my heart is soft. I care less about the accolades if my character is not matching it. That I come to God's word. I come to Sunday saying, Lay my heart bare. Lay my heart bare. I don't want to get an A on the paper and be a B preacher. I don't want that. I don't want show without go. I hope that's everyone's attitude here. It's how you prevent becoming a scribe. It's you come to church saying, reform me, change me. I'm not here to show how great I am. I'm here for you to change me into your image. I think all of us should pray this prayer. This is the end of Psalm 139. It says this. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That's the heart that prevents becoming a scribe. I haven't arrived. I'm not here for show. I'm not here to brag. I'm here 
because I need to be reformed and remade. And there might be seeds of wickedness in me right now that I don't even know were planted and they're growing and weed those out before they take me. So don't be like a scribe. Do be like this poor widow. So Jesus, once again, is reversing the way that culture looked at things. Culture would hold the scribe up high like, you're the best. And a widow, they'd be like, oh, you must have done something wrong. That's why you're poor and your husband died. But look what he does. And he sat down, verse 41, opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Jesus, I am God, so be like this poor widow. Now, you might be thinking, oh, no, here comes a message on tithing. Please don't, Matt. I brought my friend for the first time. Don't do this. (laughs) Or maybe you're like excited grabbing your checkbook. Yes, I can't wait. (laughs) Number one, I want you to know this. I don't know anything about what anybody gives. I don't know a single thing. I don't count it. I don't look at the, I look at nothing. So if you've been a big giver here and you're waiting for my phone call for thanks, Now you know why you haven't got it, because I don't know and I don't want to know because I want to not have that ever in my mind when I talk with people. So I don't know anything. And I want you to notice a couple things about this little story that I think are brilliant and then we'll be done. Number one, it's this. Jesus watched. This is the final week of his earthly ministry. This is days before he's going to the cross and Jesus sits down and watches people Give money. Why? Because it must be really important. Right? He watched. Now, why are we supposed to be generous? Why do we give? Is it because God's broke and he needs to raise money? No. It's because I'm broke and God wants to raise adults. And part of the way that he raises adult, mature people of value and character is saying, be generous. It's part of the way. Because we are born broke. Do you know that? Your children, when they started learning to speak, what were some of their first two words? No, mine. At church, when someone starts talking about giving, what are the first two words you want to say? No, mine, right? So God is saying, I want to grow you and change you from a baby to an adult. And one of the tools that I use is generosity. Okay? So I got to learn to be generous. Number two, she gave. No one forced her to. There's no, hey, give, right? No one's twisting her arm. She gave because she wanted to. Felt inspired by God's spirit to give. 
There are two chapters in the Bible that are our texts for giving. You can read them. 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. And in those two chapters, it essentially says this. Don't give grudgingly or because someone is twisting your arm because God loves a cheerful giver. The Greek there is literally hilarious. Like you are writing out that check, laughing, not because it's going to bounce, <laughs> but because you have the opportunity to be generous and to give. It is, yes, ha ha, good to give, right? No one's twisting her arm. No one's making her do it. So this has been Edgewater's philosophy from day one. We don't have like the yearly, hey, we're gonna give the stewardship talk. I talk about giving when it comes up in the Bible. It came up in the Bible. We've been going through the gospel of Mark for months now. Here it came up, so I hit it. I'm not gonna try to drudge you into it or arm wrestle you into it. I'm not gonna try to manipulate you into it. If you wanna give, good. It changes you. It's important, but I won't manipulate you. And you know that already, right? When we had the capital campaign to raise money to build this building, what did we do? Did I tell you, hey, you don't have to floss your teeth. Save the money and give me the dollar. Take cold showers and give me the money. Right? Don't drink this kind of coffee and give me the money. Did we have a thermometer that I would fill in all the time? Did we talk about it all the time? No, it was our capital campaign. I came up one Sunday. I said, we need a million dollars in a month. And then we started teaching the Bible again. That was it. That was our capital campaign. And you know this, the next Thursday, there was this pastor's breakfast that I went to and the guy who was emceeing, it was like, hey, Matt Heverly just asked for his congregation to give him a million bucks in a month. Everybody laughed. They're like, what? That'll never work. This guy actually gave me his card and he said, here, when you need help, I, I've run capital campaigns before. Give me a call. When we got the million dollars in a month, I wanted to call him and give him my business card. <laughs> Look, it works. Trust God's people, right? But I don't have a business card, so I couldn't do it. <laughs> right? She gave because she wanted to. Hilariously, cheerfully, she gave. Number three, she gave less than a penny. It's not the amount that counts. God's not concerned with the amount at all. It's literally two leptas in the Greek, which, by the way, the lepta now is one of the most sought-after coins from the 2,000-year era, because it's like, could be the widow's might. I want it, right? So people collect these things. It's worthless. If you made minimum wage, two leptas would be what you make in 7.5 minutes. So it's just tiny, tiny amount. So there are these guys, verse 41, that are coming, and they are giving massive amounts, maybe millions, just endowments amount, massive amounts, and Jesus just goes, oh, yawns. Big whoop. And then this widow gives two leptas, a penny. And Jesus is like, guys, come here. Twelve disciples, get over here. Check this out. Look how much she gave. Now, how do you think the woman felt? As she's following behind these guys who are just pouring in tons and tons of cash, and she's putting in her two, pen, her two leptas, her penny. How do you think she felt when she was doing that? Probably shame. Probably like, this doesn't matter. Probably, ah, oh, man, I'm nothing compared to these other guys, right? We can all feel that. Not Jesus. 
if you're a mom in here, let me talk to you for a second. I know you're busy with kids, right? You've got to get them up in the morning. You got to get them breakfast. You're either homeschooling or sending them to school. Then you got soccer practice. And then you've got to get, them, get dinner on the table and lunch. You got to go shopping. You got to pay bills. Like you're just busy. And I talk to you sometimes and you're like, I would so like to study the Bible more. I'd so like to go to that group. I'd so like to be involved. I'd so like to volunteer more, but ah, oh, I can't. Jesus knows. I've been given 40 hours a week by you guys to study and to pray. And I think when I do it, God just goes, Jesus just, oh, big whip, Matt. It's out of your abundance. You got a ton of time. But I think when you stop for 7.5 minutes in the morning and you just grab the Bible and read for a few minutes before your kids wake up, Jesus is like, heaven, come here, check this out. Look what she's giving out of her lack. When you stop and pray over your children and their friends in the midst of the franticness of life, Jesus is like, time out in heaven. Disciples, come here. Look what she's giving right now. This should be one of the most encouraging texts ever for us. It's not the amount. Jesus knows it, knows where we're at. And will you, when you give just what you got, Jesus times out. Come here, look at what she is giving. So be encouraged. Take your 7.5 minutes, whatever you've got, and Jesus rejoices over it. Less than a penny, and he freaks out. Finally and lastly, it's in God we trust. In God, we trust. She's a poor widow. Verse 44, Jesus says this. I'll read it again. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. That's all the money she had. She put in that money, she had nothing left. There's no safety net for her. There's no social security coming behind her. She's a widow. She has no husband to help her. She is saying when she put in those two leptas, when she's putting in that penny, she's saying, I trust God. See, this story, it's about giving, no doubt. But it's more than that. It's Jesus saying, I'm God, so trust me like the widow, trust me. That when you trust me, you're demonstrating something, especially financially, you're demonstrating, all right, I trust. That when God's spirit moves you to do something like this widow was moved, when you obey, even though it may not make sense, in that moment, you are trusting and something brilliant happens. Do you trust God? We got a lot of reasons not to trust right now, right? 10% inflation, $10 gas is coming. They're reconfiguring gas pumps to be able to hit 10 bucks. No baby formula, food shortages, supply chain shortages, housing bubble bursting, right? There's all these things that can rob you of this trust in God. And when they do, man, life is a bummer. When you like this widow, trust God. You know how free you are? You know how free you are. Huh, okay. I've been rich and I've been poor. Maybe I'll be poor again, but I still trust God. He is enthroned between the cherubim. He is the Lord of hosts. 
He has got me through 50 years. He can get me through the rest of them. I'm going to trust him. You're so free. Do you trust God? That's the moral of all this. He is Jesus. I'm God. Do you trust me? Do you trust me with your money? No doubt. Do you trust me when I prompt you to share with that coworker or that friend? Do you trust me? One of the biggest mistakes I have ever made in ministry was not trusting God to share with someone. I've told this story before. I was working as an engineer and at my lunch break at 12 o'clock, I'd run over to the gym and I would just work out for 30 minutes. It was either that or drink a lot of coffee. So I just chose that. That's a way to kind of get myself reinvigorated to, to be able to study and do what I need to do there at Met One. And so go over there one time, I end up on this elliptical right next to this guy. And we start talking, his name is Stuart. He's a lawyer in town. And man, he had a mouth, just, just cussing like crazy. So as we're running on these machines and uh, we're talking, there was like, I'm not the most spiritual guy. I know that. I'm much more cerebral. But there was pressed into my heart, share me with him. And I just had this, you know how you have that internal dialogue with God? No, I'm not going to do it. You need to share. No, you're going to embarrass me here. He's a lawyer and he's a cussing lawyer. He's going to win. We're going to get into debate. It's going to be embarrassing. I don't want me to come here at noon anymore. It's going to ruin my life. No, right? So just that dialogue. And I didn't. Next day I go there. I see him again. Again, as strong as ever. Share with him. No. I did this for 30 days straight. Yes. On the 30th day, we're on the elliptical. We're running. He asked me just, hey, have you ever been to Israel? That's a wide open door, right? I'm like, okay. I said, yeah, I have. He goes, oh, why'd you go there? I said, well, my church was having these trips and we went over there and you know, we studied the land that Jesus walked in. Oh, you're a Christian. Yes, I'm a Christian. He's like, oh man, about a month ago, I was having these crazy things with my brain. I was like literally blacking out like for five or 10 minutes and I just lose it. And so my wife kept telling me, we need to go to church. We need to go to church. We need to go to church. But we couldn't find one. I didn't know when to go, so I didn't go. I'm like, do you want to go to church with me now? <laughs> he said, no, I, I got uh, the doctor, and the doctor gave me some medication. I think I'm okay now. Yeah. I carry that with me now. I, carry, I pray for Stuart. He moved to Arizona. I pray that God uses someone more obedient than me to speak the truth to him. Why didn't I share with Stuart? Because I don't trust God. I don't trust him. Nah, you're going to embarrass. You don't know what the, really? Really, Matt? Man, do we trust? When God puts something on your heart, you take that step of faith and say, I'll do it. Maybe it's start a Bible study. Maybe it's to be a missionary. Maybe it's to plant a church. Maybe it's massive. I don't know. But it boils down to, do I trust him? This widow trusted him with everything. And Jesus stops heaven and applauds her. Do we trust him? Because when you do, you're set free. When you do, God does amazing things through people that trust him. Simple, childlike faith. Okay, Jesus, I'm gonna take a step. And so as we go to the table today, maybe like me, <laughs> you need to pray God, I need to trust you better. I need to trust you better. 
because there are things that you've put on my heart and there are things that you've told me to do and I haven't done them and I'm missing out and the world's missing out and so I wanna trust you. I'm gonna grab one of these right next. Thank you. Jesus, I pray as we come to your table today, you told us to be anxious about nothing. If you take care of the birds of the field, if you clothe the flowers, how much more you care for us. I pray that Edgewater would become a place that trusts you. That it is in God we trust. So I ask today as we eat, that you would feed and empower our inner person to be men and women of trust. Let's eat together. We hold the cup. The cup of forgiveness where I've failed to take steps of faith. I've failed to obey you. I pray that today in any areas where we have done that, that you would today whisper into our souls that we're forgiven, that you're still enthroned and that you can cleanse us from those tendencies so we become a different kind of people. So may we drink deep of your forgiveness. Let's drink together. Amen. So we're going to sing one final song. After that song, if you need prayer for something, maybe it's busyness, maybe it's ministry, maybe it's some desire that you have on your heart to do something and you're lacking the faith to do it. I know how that is. Come up, be prayed for. We have your baptisms. Lowell, right here. If you want to be baptized, come talk to Lowell. He'll explain to you salvation and baptism. And if you say, yeah, I'm in, then we'll baptize you today. Joining in the great story that Jesus is going to write in your life. So come talk to Lowell. Would you stand for one final song?